Alright, um, well, in that case, Kitty, uh, do you mind doing an introduction for yourself and, uh, maybe a little bit about what we're going to be talking about today? Alright, um, I became a licensed falconer in Maryland, where I grew up in 1974, and, um, Maryland was one of the few states at the time before the current falcon, current falcon regulations came in. That required a mentor. My mentor was a fellow named George Bitroff, who passed away about 10 years ago. And um, I got in the falconry. I fell in love with it. We used to go trapping for hawks on the eastern shore of Maryland. Um, there was very, no captive breeding when I was first in falconry. And then that started in the late 60s, early 70s with the Peregrine Fund and Cornell University. I lived in Maryland until 1992, and then I moved to Pennsylvania for a short time, and then Florida. And, um, but falconry has evolved. At first, we didn't think you could captive breed birds, and I'm reading the book by Helen McDonald called Falcon, and she has thoroughly done her research. She shows the, um, how the falconry community has done a lot of things. So it's a very good background book to read on the history of falconry, so if you want to learn more about it in much more detail. <clears throat> she wrote the book H's for Hawk, which was an international bestseller. So I've been a falconer. I did a lot of hawking, a lot of hunting, like many of the early falconers that my apprentices that have moved on are doing now. And then I started doing programs because when they asked a falconer to do a program, I said, you're missing the point. You, you say, you know, you're hunting with these birds, you work with these birds, you have to be licensed with these birds. But you don't say how falconers benefit wildlife and benefit the bird, the resource itself. And that's where I started doing my programs. And then in the mid to late 80s, I think, the abatement business started coming out. Um, as I understand, through the, um, especially out west, the berry growers, um, the falconers were seeing all these birds that they could fly, the starlings and the like that they could fly, and the Farmers saw um, cause and effect. Hey, when they fly their falcons here, the birds go away. Hmm. Can you do it to keep the birds away? Sure, says the falconers. They were looking for free hunting fields, you know, hunting fields and stuff. Then it evolved into this business. They realized that birds of prey were keeping birds away from industrial sites. You know, we see a bunch of grackles at a, at a plant. And we fly our birds on the grackles, or we fly our birds on the starlings, and we're going hmm. And that's how the industry grew. Of course, it started during World War Two and World War One to keep the birds off of the um, the airways. That was, and that's very well detailed in Helen McDonald's book, um, Falcon. And this started World War One, World War Two, and then it just evolved into a business of fish and wild, and it started in Europe first. Because Fish and Wildlife Service had a strong anti-commercialization of birds of prey, of wildlife. But we do it anyhow with, you know, breeding of ducks and other native species for reserves and the like. Um, Non-natives, of course, the pheasants that were introduced everywhere in the country. And then it moved on to, the. they said, we got to catch up. So they put in the abatement regulations at first. You could not use native species. And then they said, oh. We need to do native species, but only captive-bred native species you can use for abatement work. 
And the other commercialization was for um, the breeding, which happened in the mid to late 80s. They realized that there was a ready market for these birds in falconry. That was the mid to late 80s that selling captive bred birds was now legal with the seamless band. They had a way to mark these birds. And then the other way that the, some birds are microchipped. In Europe, they're microchipped too, or in addition. But most of them have a band because that's easy to do. You don't need a reader. And then it just evolved from there. You know, the Fish and Wildlife Service had to catch up with the market. And so now I have a federal abatement permit, like every other abatement founder has. In Europe, they started this thing called the Raptor Awards Program to get more professionalism and standards of care. The Americas already had that with our federal regulations, but the, the Brits needed to get that going too. And then they started for public programs. You had to have a license as well. That's very recent. That's in the past three to five years. And so now we need a professional organization for our birds of prey. So a bunch of the abatement people, breeders, and exhibitors, which I do all of them. I don't do the breeding. I have a breeding permit, but I'm not an active breeder. <laughs> Excuse me. And they are saying... Um, we need a professional representative organization on this side of the pond. So they're coordinating. They're just starting to coordinate with the Raptor Awards program in England to get the standards established and the like. So that's fair. It's called Professional Falcons Association on this side. And over there it's called Raptor Awards. And I'm, a, I'm their first international member. I was very impressed with their curriculum and stuff that they came out with. So to be a falconer, you have to first pass an exam have an inspection of your equipment facilities. And the third step is the hardest is to find a sponsor because we still consider falconry a hunting sport. So we want to make sure that you put the hunting aspect first. You you have to be a masterclass falcon for seven years before you can get an abatement permit. You're in a general, uh, an apprentice for two years, a general for five. Then after that seven-year period, you could get to be your master falconer permit. And the reason for that is we want to make sure that people are putting the birds first, basically it. And abatement is inherently dangerous work. Um, that's just the nature of the work. And we accept that. We mourn the loss of the birds, our feathered co-workers. But that's what happens with abatement. And that's why it's expensive. These birds, I value at about $15,000 for a fully trained bird that can fly in all sorts of situations. Um and it's mainly because if they don't like something, they fly away from it. If they fly away, they're not effective. Right, right. Any other, question? Any other questions on that? Uh, no. Um, actually, I was kind of thinking maybe a little bit going more in detail, like um, with the abatement stuff. So, like we were talking before the recording, like you've got uh, quite a few birds in your i've been using the word stable is there a more proper term for it or just say aviary or muse okay so you got quite a few in your muse then yes i probably should actually for the listeners define what what do you what is a mew like what does that word signify a mew it looks like a miniature horse's stable it's not as big as a stable it's basically a safe enclosure for the birds to be housed in all weather and the like and um, I have small mews because we have problems with coyotes in our area, and you can't keep them out. And they will tease the birds and harass them. So I have small mews, just big enough for the birds to expand their wings because I don't want them crashing into the wall right. for the coyotes. And, and you can't keep them off your property unless you just make it a fortress. You can't keep them off your property. And we have um, stray dogs, too, in our area. 
the leash laws aren't well. We have leash laws, but they're not enforced. Right. But the main thing is the coyotes I worry about, and we have foxes too. And they're very smart, very stealthy. Oh, yeah. that's uh, They're definitely yeah. known for being that. Um, yeah, and um, so that's that's why I have my system, because I've had heard of too many friends. Their birds have been a very large, very large mew. Something happens at night. The neighbor's shooting off fireworks. That's a major thing. Um, or I'm in a rural area, so people, you know, there's a, there used to be this guy that hunted coyotes at night. He was way down the road. I could hear him at night. But, um, and the birds panic and crash into the walls. They build up some speed if they have like six or seven feet, and boom, you got a bro- dead bird. They yep. broke its neck. My mews are small because of that to prevent that problem. And um, I've heard of that happening too many times. So I built a small muse. It's more like a sleeping chamber. They can bathe in it and stuff like that. Right. It's, it's no different than when the guys are transporting their, um, like we're, I'm, I'm looking at the, um, the viewers aren't going to see this on the podcast, but look at the, the, the painting in the, in the background with the, with the pointer in it. And just, I'm always thinking about gun dogs and, um, it's the same thing when you have, you know, you're transporting gun dogs is you don't give them a big kennel to ride around yeah. in. You give them just big enough. They can get comfortable and that's it. And that's, yeah. you know, keeps them safe and for the same reason, they're not, you know, they're not bouncing around and. Um, building up that momentum. Yeah, and uh, bruising themselves, and then you get a dog out of the kennel, its tail's bleeding. Right. Like bam, 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 against the wall or something like that. And people don't realize that's why you dock tails on dogs. Yeah. Uh, Especially bird dogs. Yeah, yeah, most of them all have a dock tail. Well, I mean, uh, well, except for, where do you go? My big bruiser, my Labrador. But, uh, uh, yeah, so in your mew, so we've, we know we have a bunch, but uh, what kind of breeds of or um, species of of raptor do you like to fly? Um, I know you have like a few different sections of your your businesses, so I know you have an educational component as well. Um, is there a difference in species between what you like to use for educational versus work, or the, those kind of intermingle? Or they intermingle. Um, I prefer the Harris Hawk because they are social. I can fly more than once. Um, they just, they have a very, they're social birds, so they're, they're more dog-like. They have a hierarchy. I'll fly up to five of my Harris Hawks at once, and they do fine. They do fine. I have telemetry on each one of them, so I know where they are. Somebody wanders off. <laughs> um, I have, and I have a captive bred red-tailed hawk that I use. He's great. People love him, but he's territorial, a little stinker. <laughs> so I have to keep him in close quarters because he'll go off and pick fights with the wild birds in the area. I have two barn owls that I use and that are captive bred. And people love owls. They absolutely love owls. I realized that that was an absolute must. Do you have owls is one of the first questions people have. I have a captive bred Eurasian eagle owl. She's big. She's five pounds. And then I have screech owls. I have captive bred screech owls, captive bred kestrels. And people, especially young children, like the little birds. And they work out really, really well. That's the educational aspect. The kestrels aren't that good for abatement work because the bigger birds come in and harass them. Then they instinctively they go hide. But the Harris hawk, I found, is extremely versatile. You can train them to actually be in the air like a falcon or stay in close quarters like a hawk, that, which they are. The falcons are great, but they have to be very wedded, as we call it, to the lure and very and listen very well, very fit. So if, you, if you're in the big fields, you rotate birds out. You rotate birds out all day long because it takes a tremendous amount of energy to fly around. 
So the falconers will fly one bird for a while, and then that bird will get a rest, and then they'll do the next bird, and then the next bird. Usually three to five birds a day is what they'll rotate out. So is that... Like berry fields and air fields and things like that. So uh, say you have three to five with you. Um, When you say you're rotating them out often... like how much air time are they are they getting? Are they flying multiple times a day just with with rest in between, or is it just they, yeah, they're flying? Yeah, they need to do. Yeah, they need to rest in between the flights. Yeah, and um, birds spend only five percent, at the very most twenty percent of the time in their waking hours in the air. That's it. It's like us sprinting all day long. Yeah. So you have to rotate the birds out. That's why we have to have. I I wouldn't even begin to do any abatement job of less than three birds. I wouldn't even begin to. One bird cannot do it all. Right. It cannot do it. You have to rotate the birds out to get tired. Yeah, because I'm, I'm think, trying to remember I back. Think, I had a uh, when I was in college, which is longer than I'd like to admit right now. Uh, I did take a bird of prey course, and my professor uh, had actually his favorites were also Harris hawks. Um, yeah. In northern New York, he had a, a big female named Frida and a little male called Eddie. Um, and Frida was, she had a reputation, put it that way. Uh, she would just glower at you when you would walk in the door. She would just stare you down, and you'd swear yeah. she could come up and rip like, every every hair out of your head until you sat down, until the next person came through the door, and then she'd just turn her focus to them. Like, mm. Yeah, everybody got intimidated by that little bird. Oh. No, mine are pretty friendly. I mean, they're aloof, but they're they're pretty what I call friendly. Not dog friendly, but what I call tractable. They when they realize that my guests have food, <laughs> oh, I'm going to come in and play. And I have the tee post, which is so important nowadays because you can place the bird exactly where you want it. I have seven tee posts. When I do, I have um, which is just a paint pole, a modified paint pole with a PVC on top. And I have a blog called internationalfalconacademy.blogspot, and I have instructors on how to make that. The other equipment that I have put together over the decades. But um, that has become absolutely essential in a field. You call the bird to it, you can put launch the bird from it. Um, and I find that they like it. They like to be above your head. And they'll walk along. They'll, I'll just walk along with the T-post, and the bird just ride the T-post with me. Yeah, I was doing abatement work at a restaurant, and the only way to really be effective was to walk through the crowd with the bird on the T-post to keep the darn grackles off their meals. <laughs> because between kids secretly feeding them French fries and people dropping food, the grackles knew what to do, and they would just hang around. So one day, my hawk, my one Harris hawk, Tabasco is her name, she jumped down flew down and went between the legs of the tables to chase a grackle. That was pretty neat. I wish I had a recording of that. <laughs> Nobody was the wiser that there's this hawk flying through their legs. Oh, yeah. The that's... chasing this grackle. It's so discreet. Yeah, that's, yeah. They're, and they're fun to watch anyways. But, uh, yeah, there's one nice thing is, you know, it's a, a hawk can go, go places and do things that uh, a person trying to do the same job just going to get it's a little more attention. Up. Yeah. Um, and the only issue I really had with resorts were guests that just felt, well, I'm at a high-end resort. I pay $500 a night for a room. My kid can throw French fries to the birds. <laughs> um, sorry, they can't. But they have this very, what I call, delicate protocol they have to do. Because I would tell them, and I'd see, i go, okay, 
my hawks are present, but why are there birds here? And I see some kids secretly throwing French fries under the table. So I go to the staff, the serving staff. I go, um, this kid in the blue shirt is throwing French fries under the table. And I, you know, it, it doesn't work unless this kid stops. And they kind of look at me and said, and I could tell in their eyes, that's going to kill my tip. Yeah. You know, telling them out there, that's going to kill my tip. So I would tell the manager, let the manager do it after they're done eating and they paid their tip. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I can understand the staff's viewpoint that says, well, you know, this is what I do for a living and giving good service and not telling them they can't do something that they shouldn't be doing, you know, it affects my bottom line, affects my pay. Right. Yeah, and you can't really blame them for, you know, watching for that wallet that Make sure that oh, they... I don't blame them at all. I don't blame them at all. Oh, I'm just saying, yeah, I'm just agreeing with you. But uh, you have to, you have to have the bad guy not be the one that's getting the money. <laughs> <laughs> um, at those resorts, they they depend so heavily on tips, so so heavily on tips as a, as a major part of their revenue, as their income. So, in addition to the resorts, uh, what other kind of places do you like to fly at? Um, the resort work is the main thing that we get here in Florida. The problem I had with the agricultural crops is that they don't have the yields to justify the cost compared to the Northwest and other parts of the country with longer days in the growing season, the length of day, and the much richer soil. A fellow came down from Washington State, if I remember, and um, they were going to get into the Florida abatement market and he comes down and he went to a few blueberry farms and he said, I have two and a half times the yield per acre as you guys. You, yeah, you can hit the market in March. I can't hit the market in March, but I have two and a half times the yield per acre. So they just couldn't justify the cost of abatement work. And their fields aren't as big. You know, they'll have like, somebody says, well, I have 20 acres of blueberries. Okay. You know, I, I, it doesn't matter if it's 20 acres or 200 acres. My birds eat the same, and the same risks are there. And um, and I, I, I say it's about 100 acres per bird. So you have a 200 acre, you have two professional falconers, and it's a professional fee you have to pay these guys. And I compare what I charge to an auto mechanic, a skilled auto mechanic. That's how I, that's the, it's a skilled trade that, demands a decent price. In Florida, they're spoiled between the retired people supplementing their income and the immigrant workers coming in and working for far cheaper. It's a tough it's a tough market down here. Yeah, I can just imagine. But you definitely, yeah, because, well, I mean, you're the same as, as we are. I mean, you're really getting what you pay for um, yeah. as far as, you know, who you have coming and, and doing the work. But, uh, yeah, yeah. so... <laughs> I'm just going back to the hair shows because this is they're. I just love hearing that you, you like using them because they're one of my favorite raptors. Um, you know to photograph and watch. And I mean, I live in Arizona, so I mean we see hair. There's a Harris hawk. I can't see him right now, but there's usually a Harris hawk within about a quarter mile of my apartment. Yeah, yeah, and they're wonderful birds. They were discovered in the mid '70s by. I can't, just a group of falconers that just happened to trap them and start working them. And they went, oh my gosh, these things are just dogs with wings. <laughs> they don't have, a, you can fly them together. 
which is great. You know, red tails are fabulous birds, but you can't fly two red tails together unless you raise them together. And it's still kind of iffy when they start getting sexually mature. They just don't cooperate. But Harris hawks, you know, you put a half a dozen of them together, different falconers, and you sit them out and let them kind of talk to each other on their perches and kind of, you know, they do the little Harris hawk hierarchy thing, and then they'll set it up and they get along great. You know, you, you have very, I have, might have had battles, might have gotten in fights and stuff like that, but I, <laughs> I get in there and intervene. I'm like the boss hawk in that regard. So for folks that don't know what we're talking about as far as a heart, so, I've always heard a common nickname for Harris Hawks is the Wolves of the Sky. Yes, they are yeah. the Wolves of the Sky. I mean, because we're talking about a raptor, a, a bird of prey that, like you said, they they're social. They 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 hunt in packs. Like we see a we see multiple Harris Hawks all the time in the wild here. Yeah, and um, the thing that they're finding out: most birds of prey are monogamous. They'll they'll nest together. Very few birds of prey have more than one mate. But they're finding that many Harris Hawks families are polyamorous. Females that have more than one male supplying food, and the males will be the the father of more than one nest. And the, it's all. And then the, the the prior year's babies are helped by the help out the current year's babies. So they they work together as one giant family, and um, they just don't. They they're not as and they're they're wonderful in that regard because they. I don't know. I just love Harris Hawk. <laughs> but my, I love falcons tremendously. I've flown peregrines. I've flown prairie falcons. But they're big sky bird. And if it's a big sky area and you have a very, very reliable falcon, they're very good. Another issue here in Florida with raptor abatement work, and the Harris Hawks excel at this, is the native raptors. And the main raptor here in Florida that's a problem for the smaller birds of prey, such as Barbary falcons and Oplomato falcons, is the red-shouldered hawk. They harass the heck out of the birds, and they gang up. They'll they'll have um, a pair and then usually a couple of offspring hanging around come in, and they harass the heck out of your hawks. And that was another problem they encountered when the northeastern, the northwestern falconer abatement companies came down here was the red-shouldered hawks that they were encountering. That was another hassle that they were dealing with. Yeah. Not to mention the Cooper's Hawks and the Red Tail Hawks and the Bald Eagles and the Garrick Eras as well. The main thing was the Red Shouldered Hawks because they're so common. So, do you, in your part of Florida, do you guys deal with the Swainsons at all, or? Very rarely. I saw some in Louisiana um, when I was in Louisiana in the Lafayette area. Um, I saw some Swainsons Hawks there. Very rare. Wolves have a zone-tailed hawk white-tailed hawk down further south. We have the caracaras, which are really neat. They can be rather territorial. <laughs> and they're a little bit further south than us. So I didn't realize that Florida got caracaras. Yes, we have caracaras. We have scrub jays, too. We have a Florida scrub jay, just like Texas. Yep. Yep. Yeah, remember... It's, the same. it's a subspecies. You know, they're, they're scrub jays, but it's a separate species. The Florida scrub jay, but we, we definitely have caracaras. If you go um, right into further south, like Orlando further south, you go into the inland area. Immokalee has them all over the place, Immokalee, Florida, which is um, a major agricultural area. It's You go there, huge Mexican um, you know, migrant worker community there. Some are permanent residents there or, or you know, permanent green card holders and stuff. But it's like going into Mexico there. There's only one Chinese restaurant and one American food restaurant. Everything else is Mexican. 
And I was told that it's one of the largest Mexican communities outside of Mexico in the United States. It's like California, Texas, and Florida. It's one of the largest communities. Right. Yeah, I'm just still getting over the Caracaras because that's one that, um, you know, whenever I think of Caracaras, I think of, you know, southern Arizona, south Texas, you know, yeah. as far as, you know, them in the, being in the states. I just never picture them in, in Florida. I didn't know they were there. Yeah, they definitely are in Florida. Yeah, because I just um, remember doing a little bit of work. I saw one in Louisiana years ago. Really? That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah I remember I seeing um, Swain since I was down in. big woodpecker. Oh, that's a Caracara. <laughs> yeah, they got a pretty unique body structure, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, I just remember being in, Flor- in, the south, in the southern part of Florida uh, a few years ago and seeing uh, what I considered a lot of Swainson's hawks. And uh, I just didn't know how prevalent they were in that whole state, but uh, that I, I think was they're further south because we don't fly them. But we have um, zone-tailed hawks. We have oh, what's the other one? And I see them here in North Florida. We have beautiful swallowtail kites here. We I was just going to ask you: kites. Do they ever have any issues with the kites, or the kind of they kind of no. stick to their own thing? No, they, as a rule, they're they're pretty good. They it's more bluff than anything else. Marsh hawks a little bit. Marsh hawks will harass us a little bit, um, but the kites. Um, they're interesting. They'll come in. They're so maneuverable. They're as maneuverable as an exhibitor in the woods, but yet they can outfly anything. And you know, they can fly like a gull in the air. They just—they're so aerial. Yeah, dip and dive. I, I've had Mississippi and um, swallowtail kites in my woods, and I've watched them fly through the woods. And they're as agile as any Cooper's hawk in the woods. I was very impressed. Which is saying something. That's a yeah. No, that's a pretty good comparison because that's one species. Um, yeah, that's one – actually, two species. I've, I've never seen any of the kites. But, uh, yeah, I've heard, you know, about, you know, them being so agile and just – it's a species that's really on my hit list for, uh, you know, really wanting to get that under my belt and just to be able to uh, observe them. But um, uh, Well, North Florida has them. We have them all through Suwannee County, North Florida, a large kestrel population – even though they are in decline due to these, this new series of pesticides, the um, neonicotinoid pesticides, which are not good for anything. Birds are super sensitive to nicotine, and so are insects. And I thought, well, this would be a safe pesticide, and it's not. You know, anything that kills something is just it has, there's all kinds of unseen. Right. If there's if there's side in the name, it's probably not good. Yeah, <laughs> that's how I feel about it. <laughs> and the rodent side issue, killing off stuff. They're finding um, bromelain and all those terrible rodent sides all the way up the food chain now. Yeah. Well, I mean, when they're coming out with that, they're not thinking of the term bioaccumulation. Yeah, yeah. they don't. They don't. They just want the here and now. Everybody wants things dead here and now. And um, they have done a great owl box program in South Florida. I'm told that was quite successful. Barn owl boxes. For the sugarcane fields. And if you ever go to a sugarcane field along the Gulf Coast, everything's out there. Rats, rabbits, you know, and then the raptors. And I've been to one sugarcane field. I counted 12 red-tailed hawks in the sugarcane field in Louisiana. My faculty friends took me down there. And that's where they go trapping for hawks. They go to the sugarcane fields. Now, just sugarcane, that's the one they burn it before they harvest it, right? And they burn it after they harvest it. I think. Oh, it's after that. Remember, there's a burn after involved. Yeah, because you crush the cane. They they cut the plants and then they crush the cane to get the sugar out of it. Then they boil it down. 
Yeah. And sugar season. And there's an there's an old sugar house just down the road where I bicycle here. And they get that they get the liquid, they squeeze the liquid out of it. It's kinda like making maple syrup, but it's not as concentrated. But it's just sugar cane. They crush the cane, they get the juice out of it, and then they boil it down. Okay, I didn't realize how similar it was to yeah, because I mean, I grew up in maple syrup, maple syrup country. Yeah, it's um, just a much larger. You know, you you can, like I say, you cut the cane and then you you crush it, and uh, and then they yeah, boil that it just down extracts all the sugars and juices until it's the crystals. You know, they dry. I don't know how they the exact process, but it's not dissimilar to the chemistry used for maple syrup. It's just a different product. Oh, that's it, pretty cool. Just, that's one. Th- I, yeah, I didn't. I was not aware of that. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, so just, I know I should be, because of this is, you know, we kind of geared more to your airport, so I should, I should focus on the abatement, but I do want to talk about your educational work. So you're, so you've got, like, I'm on your website, um, birdsofprey.net, and I'm actually looking at a picture of your, uh, the T-post you mentioned earlier for a, for a Harris Hawk. So... What do you guys offer? Cause it looks like maybe like the public comes and and plays with the like I can't say the word play, but mess you know with the with the raptors. Yeah, it's kind of like a horseback riding experience, but with birds of prey. People don't want the commitment of a horse, but they want to go horseback riding. <laughs> I do it with birds of prey. That's the only difference. It's just a different species of animal. I do have a three day academy, but this year COVID's kind of killed it. Last year I had three students at the academy, and this year I haven't had one sign up this year between the economic impact and and um but i usually hold at bienville plantation a three-day intense academy for people that really are interested in getting in the falcon i teach them how to handle the birds and i teach them how to make the equipment and i really get into the laws and the ethics of it as well so they understand what they're really getting into anybody who deals with animals understands that it's a commitment and birds of prey just, you know, you have to kind of bend your mind a little bit differently to deal with them because you have to be constantly adjusting your equipment, your housing to the individual bird. And and we're always thinking of different ideas and stuff like that. Some are very old that are being rediscovered. And um, so, and I just teach them how, just watch the bird, watch the bird. You got to look at that bird every single day, make sure it's not... I mean, an injury on its foot that turns into bumblefoot or it has a wingtip edema if it's too cold. Harris hawks are prone to frostbite, wingtip edema. So more so in England than here in the States. I don't hear about it too much here in the States. But in England, they get that a lot. For some now, reason. is it just because of the cooler climate or what would make England I different? the humidity. I think the humidity has a lot to do with it. It's so damp in England all the time. Yeah. But I rarely ever hear about it in the United States. But boy, it's common in England with aerosols. They have to be real careful. But I mean, it makes sense, kind of, that it happens with hair. I mean, just because they're a southwestern, yeah, species. I mean, like I said, we, I mean, on I was, the wingtips, and on the bitter cold night, that it'll ice up. They get frostbite on the wingtips, and it kills the skin, and their feathers fall out. Yeah. So it's and a it true fl- uh, frostbite kind of setup. Yeah, and it's frostbite. They call it wingtip edema, but basically, it's frostbite. All right, yeah, just because it makes sense. I mean, we're having some. So I live. I'm in Phoenix, right in the middle of Phoenix, and uh, you know we're getting down into. I'm, I, like I said, I'm in the Harris Hawk country. I mean, that there's one. Like I said, I can't see him, but there's, there's probably one. I'm within half a mile of, of a Harris Hawk right now, and 
yeah, I mean, we're having some of our coldest nights of the year right now, and it's, and it's only getting down into the, like, 34, 35, so not quite freezing temperatures. So I can definitely see how, and, and there's no humidity. There, there is no moisture in the air, so I can definitely see how it's really going to mess with them because it's not what they're bred for. Yeah, I think the, their wings literally ice up in England. And, um, you know, and I really don't know exactly, but I'll hear the, I'm on the British sites and I'll hear the British falconers talk about it. And they said, don't tether your hairs off low in the mew because that's the coldest part. Yeah. You know, and um, have it up higher in the mew. Or some people put supplemental heat in their mews for the birds. Some guys um, put like piano key heaters to heat up a piano. There's all kinds of safe heaters. You just got to watch out for the Teflon. Birds are real sensitive to it. The BTFEs from Teflon. And it's in everything now. Right, right. No, that's pretty interesting. I was not aware of that. Um, yeah. I mean, it makes sense. Like, I mean, like, it fully makes sense. I just I wasn't aware that that was such a common issue, with, especially with the Harris Hawks. Yeah, they can't take that bitter cold. They don't have the feathers around their feet like a red-tailed hawk does. Red-tails can take some pretty good cold, but, you know, anything below 20 degrees, you've got to be extra careful. Oh, yeah. You've got to be real careful. Watch their weight. Give them a good, rich diet. Um Make sure they have enough calories to burn off because birds literally burn their body fat for energy to keep warm. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, I know, like yeah. when you're like dealing with ducks, uh, you can always you can always tell if you got fresh ducks if the duck's been in the area for a while after you know when you're you're cleaning them um, after you've yeah. harvested them uh, just by looking at the fat content. You look yeah. and see how much fat they've got. So okay, he's been here for a while. Because I mean, one with with waterfowl, which I'm more you know, educated on waterfowl than I am on birds of prey. Um, you know, one jump of the migration route, you know, just going from Canada to Illinois or Illinois to Texas, that'll burn that whole layer of fat. Yeah. I mean, and then it'll start eating into the muscle. You get the winter, it's called winter anemia. Yep. They use their body fat up and they start eating their muscle for energy. Yeah. Look at that little have a bit of wasting going on. Yeah. And this, and I was talking to some duck hunters about the rice breast. It's a it's a parasite. Yep. And some people say it's safe to eat, and I go, no, thank you. <laughs> yeah, um, I've actually been lucky. I've only ever had a a couple of ducks that had rice breast, and yeah, that's. I no, thank you. Yeah, I couldn't bring myself to do it. Um, no. but also, you know, at the same time, you know, I was learning about rice breast the same time that chronic wasting disease in big game was starting to become more prevalent. Yeah, and I'm trying to figure out what's causing the prions to go through that causes the C, you know, CWD in the big game. And I think it's just that there's so many of them now. I think that's just... Yeah, know, so CWD <laughs> has an interesting story. So it actually began in... If I remember right, and it began in Colorado at a research facility uh, because it's basically scrapey, like you find in sheep. Yeah. So it's basically a mutated form of scrapey that got from the sheep into a mule deer population in Colorado. And then the mule deer, you know, just with just over the years it, with, the, with transfer, it the, and it hit the you know hit the elk, it hit the white tail and the black tail deer, and yeah, but it hit them all it through out there, the moose, everything, yeah. But it hit them all through the transport of domesticated or you know captured populations. 
So you have these mule deer became, um, you know, they they got the mutation originally. Um, they transmitted to other wild mule deer uh, as the infected deer were transported around the country to to deer farms, research facilities. You know, it got into their populations, but through direct contact or even indirect contact, because it's been lasting the ground for. It seems like every time we do a new studies, well, it's lasting longer and longer in the ground. Yeah. Um, but like you said, it's, it's this mutated prion, which is yeah. you know, for folks who don't know what I'm, it's it's basically a protein. It's but it's it's yeah, not. It's a protein. Pro- it's a brain protein, and yeah. it's a nerve protein. And people don't understand. You can't kill the protein. All you can do is burn it, destroy it. Yeah, you know? that's that's yeah, exactly. That's the only thing they have found so far that'll remove it is fire. Um, yeah. And yeah, so it's getting in. We control fires now. Back then, fires, you know, went everywhere. Florida went back to control burn about 30 years ago. Yep. And um, fire is part of our cleansing of the environment. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, hell, I mean, I'm in Arizona. I mean, there's fires are just a. That's just. I mean, one of my good buddies is on a hotshot crew, and it. It seems like every time I talk to him, he's on another. Well, he's not so much now because it's the middle of winter. But uh, you know, during the summer, you know, I don't, I don't think he gets more than a couple of days off the line, and they got a new one that, you know, they're yeah. out fighting again. Yeah, that and Florida, we will have wildfires here, and we have to be careful because we're semi-arid and um, semi-arid environment here. But there'll be wildfires in our area too. We keep our place mowed. Yeah, we keep our place short. And um, because we do have a very similar semi-arid environment here, which I just I, it's um uh when I when I think of Florida, I don't think of arid. <laughs> I just I always always think of like damp and humid and uh. In its way, it's humid, but because of our soil being so sandy, it doesn't stay. Right. Not like when you go to areas like Louisiana, where it's there all the time because the soil is so clay filled. Here it's so sandy, it, it all drains away. That's the difference. Even though I, I go west each year to Louisiana, and the same latitude, but because the soil's different, it doesn't hold the moisture. It just sits there. Here in Florida, it drains away because yeah. of the sand. So it is humid here, especially since we have ocean. You know, We have the Gulf on one side and the ocean on the other. But it drains away very quickly. Now, summertime, we have the storms that come in, and it's very damp and humid here. But it drains away still. Right. So being so far north, do you guys, you guys get hit with the hurricanes a lot, or? Oh yeah, yeah, um, yeah. The hurricanes it just depends on the direction it goes. We're fifty-three miles inland, and that's, and that's what we wish for. <laughs> on the coastal areas, get hit with the storm surge. They'll get the higher winds. Um, but here inland, we basically will just have the sustained rains. And one of the worst storms that we had in recent years was Tropical Storm Debbie. It wasn't even a hurricane, but we got 30 inches of rain in three days. Oof. So uh, in, when it's that bad, I mean, I'm assuming, like, how do you, like, how do the raptors deal with that? Um, they hunker down or they ride in the eye. Uh, surprisingly enough, birds spend time in the eye of the hurricane. Yeah, those- Any pilot, my dad was a hurricane hunter in the 50s, in the 40s, when he first joined the Army Air Corps um, in 1938. And he told me about seeing birds in the eye of the hurricane when he was in the Hurricane Hunters. Then I hear another pilot talks about it. Oh, I went through the eye of a hurricane. There's thousands and thousands of birds 
riding the eye of the hurricane. They just, you know, because it's in a circle, they're just soaring the whole time, not using hardly any energy. Yeah. And they ride them out. Thousands of birds. That's pretty so cool. That's, that's an yeah, interesting I did not... natural phenomenon. That's how we got cattle egrets here into Florida. It's a natural migration, so they're a protected species rather than an introduced species. But it came through from Africa across the straits on the tropical waves that turn into hurricanes here in the eastern, you know, in this part of the world. And that's why, you know, you when we watch the Straits of Africa very carefully, we watch these storms come off heading east to the Florida. Yeah. Basically through the to the Caribbean area and they will skip either up the coast, the Carolinas, or they'll skip into the Gulf or they form in the Gulf too. Sometimes they form in the Pacific and come across the Yucatan. But most of the time they stay, the Yucatan and the Central America is pretty much a dividing line between the hurricanes. Very rarely do they cross over from Atlantic to Pacific. Okay, kind of, yeah, kind of acts as that buffer from line. that area. Very, very rarely. Huh. Yeah, I didn't, it's I didn't interesting. know interesting. Was- when you watch the hurricane season and watch it, it's, it's quite a thing. We, we watch it very carefully, being Floridians. Yeah, it's uh, I, I got that's just one of those things that wherever I've lived, it's always been kind of a passing thought, just because we, we never deal with it. But um, I know my cousin's been dealing with it a lot more. She moved to Florida. Uh, what part? Or not? Sorry, not Florida. Um, Georgia. I don't know. Uh, Coastal Georgia. Yeah, because that's the people forget that Carolina and Georgia, North South Carolina, and especially North Carolina, is basically what they call the. Um, there's tons of pirate ships sunk there. Tons of ships sunk all through that area. Yeah, wasn't it? Uh, it's the graveyard. It's the graveyard of the east. Yeah. Was it Captain Kidd? They said has buried treasure in North Carolina. Yeah, the, the, people forget. There's we had a tremendous amount of pirates here from all through the Gulf and and the area. Yeah, lots of and there's all these pirate festivals now all through Florida <laughs> and in these southern states. Now it's a big deal now. Ever since then, the pirates of the Caribbean came out. And I think That's he was big. more Louisiana, but what? Um, whenever I think of the like, Gulf of Mexico pirates, I always think of uh, uh, Lafitte. Um, yeah, Lafitte, and and I I didn't really know much about his history, but he kind of like disappeared, like he just changed his identity and you know went incognito for the rest of his career. <laughs> yeah, he's a he made his money and <laughs> disappeared. Yeah, that's a I mean, so if anybody's listening, um. Remember what was it, George? No, it's not George Lafitte. It's um, John Lafitte. John Lafitte. Yep, yep. Uh, he That's was a pretty badass character. I mean, he fought. I mean, he was a pirate. Uh, I think one of my favorite, and it's it's gotten to be pretty common knowledge. Not well, I mean, you see it on online a lot. But uh, the governor of Louisiana put out a bounty for like five hundred bucks on his head. So yeah. he turned around and put a bounty for five thousand dollars on the governor's head. <laughs> yeah, and he had the money to do it, but, uh, but he seemed to have just disappeared. So, like, he just changed his identity and moved someplace and lived out his life is what some people speculate. That's probably but, exactly what he did. I mean, he's basically the pirate version of um, Butch Cassidy in that regard. Yeah. Nobody really. I mean, we got. I mean, there's so many of them old west. I mean, because he was in that era. I mean, he. I mean. Uh, John Lafitte fought in the Battle of New Orleans in 1814, yeah. but uh, I mean, from him up up through the like, um, you still hear the old legends of you know 
uh, Billy the Kid, Jesse James, most famously yeah. Butch Cassidy. You know that you know they say they lived for longer than they did, and yeah. or longer than the common history, or if you want to recall it that. Everybody um, gets old. You can't do that crazy stuff all your life, so yeah. you can't do the Daredevil stuff. And, well, I got um, the whole thing with Butch Cassidy. You know, um, Butch Cassidy's sister claims that he came back to the states in in the like 1915 or something like that. Um, you know, after he wasn't killed in Bolivia, and you got here in Arizona, the most famous one is uh, uh, he was known as the Apache Kid. Um, he was a, a scout during the Apache Wars of the 1880s, and he wound up uh, uh, another Apache warrior killed his father. I think the warrior's name was Rip. Killed the kid's father. So in cultural, you know, practices, the kid killed Rip, you know, and yeah. was wanted for murder, uh, escaped, wound up, uh, there was a small shootout or no, somebody was fighting for a gun and Al Sieber wound up catching a bullet in the ankle. Um, and he was, a, uh, one of the most famous Indian scouts. Um, he actually was the chief of scouts. He was Austrian or German, if I remember right. But yeah, um... Uh, and they say that the, the the kid, you know, was gone, and uh, uh, you know they they say like the soldiers, you know, they killed him near Globe, in you know twenty years later or five years later. And, but I've actually talked to guys that swear that the kid lived and lived out the rest of his lives in the Sierra Madres down in old Mexico. I wouldn't doubt that. I, I, it's just you know you made your money, you hid your money. You know, we, drug dealers do it nowadays. I mean, that's drugs. You know, they hide their money. They bury their money. They know how to do it now and preserve it. They know exactly where it is now with GPS. Yep. And um, they dig it up. You know, they get out of prison. They do their time. Get out of prison. Dig up their money. Oh, I bet you they're still they're digging set. up Pablo Escobar's cash. Yeah. And it's, there's a book about that called um, Smuggler's Ghost that's out. Yep. And um, my husband knew some of those people <laughs> in the book. He knew a couple of the people. Thinking of Florida, and it was reptiles, not not raptors. But uh, another book, I need to finish it. Um, I started reading it. I was borrowing the book, and then I had to give the book back before I could finish it. But I got I to gotta finish the book. But have you ever read Stolen World? No. It's about uh, reptile smuggling in Florida in the, oh, like, 1970s. I have that did do real smuggling, but they used to get, they used to find reptiles and um, and then sell them to the pet stores. That's how they paid for their Florida vacation. Well, this is like, uh, like, you'll have, like, rare bird or rare stuff, like, going missing in Indonesia or, like, uh, zoos having a rare specimen in, in Burma. And all of a sudden, it's gone, and it shows up in somebody's collection in Tallahassee. Kind of. I wouldn't doubt that. No, the Smuggler's Ghost is very similar to that, but it's drugs. It's mar- mainly marijuana, some cocaine, but mainly marijuana. Yeah. And um, yeah, there's a whole market in in the old field and streams. Buy a hawk. You know, you can buy a harpy eagle or a, or <laughs> an ornate hawk eagle from South America for one hundred and fifty dollars. People were importing this stuff in the 60s and 70, 50s through the 70s until the Migratory Bird Treaty Act ended all that. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, if you get to an old field and stream, look at the old vintage ones, 
look in the back there, buy a hawk. <laughs> <laughs> and that whole thing, and the same thing with the reptiles. And there's still um, extensive reptile breeders here in Florida that um, they do exotic animals, you know, lizards, reptiles, and acrids and stuff like that. And um, I buy mice from them. Yep. They, they supply, you know, they sell the food too. You know, they breed mice to, to feed their animals. So you can buy, you know, earthworms and superworms. And so they have a market for that too, for all that, for that entire industry. Oh, yeah. Whenever you have one, there's going to be smaller industries to support it. One of them has five warehouses full of breeder reptiles. Oof. Five warehouses that they rent. That's, that's huge. Yeah, that is massive. Yeah. So that's got me another question. I've been down there to pick up mice, and there's they have a whole block of warehouses devoted to their business. Jeez. So that's got me kind of curious. So, how many mice, or how much food does it take to to keep your your muse up to date or up to snuff? Um, my food bill is usually about three to five hundred a month, depending on my sources where I get the food. I, I partner with a guy that we buy quail in bulk. We buy four thousand at a time. I can keep four hundred of them, and my so and I get the bulk prices that way. But you got to buy four thousand at a time. That's a lot of birds. Yeah, that is. That's so, a lot of frozen quail. We get them from one of the big quail producers in the United States, and it's all their retired breeders, so they're bigger. And um, so I like that because they're much bigger. They're almost twice as big as when they grow out quail, and you get the grow out quail. Okay, so when you guys are doing the, are you using the quail uh, strictly as a food source, or use them a little bit for for training? Or no, these are these are frozen quail that we get. These are retired breeders, and the and the provide and the quail breeder just freezes them. They supply them to zoos and wildlife rehabbers and 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 people like us. But the and but if you're willing to, um, you know, partner with a group of people like we have done, we buy them four thousand at a time and we split it up between our own projects. And that way, we get rather than pay two fifty a quail, we pay a dollar forty a quail, kind of type of thing. So save a lot on our food bill. Yeah, that's that ain't bad. I think we're paying for live quail. I think we're paying like six bucks a piece or something like that. That's Bob White's. These are Caternix quail. These are food quail. Oh, these are Caternix. Okay. Yeah, these are Caternix. These are food quail. The Bob's, oh, yeah, they go minimum $4 a piece, and they don't have the rich red meat that we need for raptor food. Yeah. They're almost like rabbit. They just don't put the keep the weight on the raptors. Oh, yeah. What's the old saying? Uh, a man can starve on rabbit alone? Yeah. Just They just don't carry the nutrients. Or just, there's nothing in the meat. Yeah, they just don't have the fat. They just don't have the fat. Yeah, just... There's no vitamins in it. There's nothing. It's yeah. It's just gonna it's fill just, your belly, and that's that's all it's gonna do. Yeah, yeah. So I'm just looking. Um. So probably ought to wrap this up. We've been going for almost an hour, but uh, so I'm looking around. Um, and just again, your website is birdsofprey.net. Uh. And my abatement site is called birdstrikeforce.com. Birdstrikeforce.com. Okay. So, That's my and are, are those the best way, you know, if folks want to get a hold of you or? Yes, yes. At birdsofprey.net, I'm working on, um, GoDaddy had me change the platform. They they were losing their old support system or whatever. And I had to update the platform and, and rewrite the site. And I just added my PDF page. I just added my um, links page to it. 
and I just got to learn to do the social media. I'm going to have to sit down with GoDaddy and go, how do I connect my Facebook? How do I connect Instagram? You know, so it shows up on the website. You know, here's our latest Facebook post. Here's our latest Instagram post. And so I have, um, I, I, ha- I got a second cell phone, um, an iPhone that I do the Instagram and the Facebook on it because I don't want my main cell phone tied up with all that stuff. <laughs> it, uh, it gets to be too much. Oh yeah, for sure. So on the social media, how can folks like what what do they what should they type in the search bar to find you? International Falconry Academy or my I have three divisions. I have the Educational Birds of Prey, then I have the um which just includes the Falconry School, that's under the education part. And then I have the pest control work, which is a separate site, birdstrikeforce.com. And then I have the um yeah, it's the three divisions, the falconry school, the public programs, and the abatement. And I have a, I, I have a breeding permit, but I'm um, not actively breeding. I got that a long time ago, and I never let it lapse. Very cool. Well, Miss Kitty, um, I believe, do you have any anything you want to add up before we wrap this up? Any closing comments or... Um, basically go to the North American Falconers Association. Um, I would strongly recommend a lot of, many people, if they want to read a book about the history of falconry, um, Helen McDonald's book is very good. In fact, it mentions some friends that I know who are, who have passed away in the book, um, American Falconers, and she's done her research on that book, um, the book that she wrote called Falcon. And, um, and then... Just go to my links page. The Peregrine Fund is mentioned in her book. Um, how how we we save the peregrine. Nobody knew how to save the peregrine falcon except for falconers. Everybody else blundered. Except until falconers got involved, nobody knew how to save the peregrine. And she describes that in her book very detailed and very accurately. I'm a I'm a transitional generation. I didn't get to fly peregrines when they were still takeable back then. We can take them again now, but um, and go to North American Falconers Association. Um, go to the links page on my site, and just you'll find links of interest. And if you want to get books for a good price, go to thriftbooks.com. That's where I get my books. You get um, they sell a lot of used books, and that's where I get most of my books too. Okay, yeah, so that's definitely a good a good link if everybody's got any interest in. You know, in fact, I need to add it to the links page. <laughs> I, I, well, that's I where I'm. Redo, that's, I need to reload up my links page again. Well, that's where I'm at now. So, uh, yeah, the links, the, and you got quite a few links on here to find just about anything you're looking for. You know, apart from the used books page you just mentioned, but uh, uh, I even see you have the Grouse Partnership on there. I wasn't expecting to see that one. The Grouse Partners was again founded by Falconers for our Upland Grouse. Um, and I, when I would go out to Wyoming, I would see some of the oil rigs and I go, well, I don't see them that destructive. And they said, no, really their footprint is not that big. The actual footprint, you know, they're kind of stinky when you drive by them, you know, the oil wells and stuff like that. But the problem is, is that all these equipment's up in the air and the grouse see that as a perch for eagles and other predators. So they will not go there. Yep. They will not nest there. They won't roost there. The other issue is the overgrazing of the cattle. Wicked. 
and people don't realize that is such a big issue. And a friend of mine showed privately owned ranch land that didn't have, that wasn't a ranch, and the sage was like two feet high. No, like five feet high, which is the average size of the height of the sage. And then where it was grazed, open range land, it was barely two feet high. Yep. And sage is a tough plant. It's used to fires and stuff like that. But the grouse needs that that more that taller sage to survive. And the cattle and the cattle just destroy the riparian areas. They get in there, they just tear it up. They just tear them up completely. Oh yeah, because I mean, I was in I was out in the desert this past weekend, and there was a. Uh, it was both public land, but one of them had a, a current cattle lease on it. The other one was not. One of them was just left for the wildlife, and there was a fence line separating them. And I mean, it's been a very dry year, so everything looks horrible right now. Yeah. But you know, I took a photo down that fence line, and it's a very apparent which side is which. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, that's it's what just... my friend showed me in Wyoming. Yeah, when it's, I went out uh, there to get my eagle, and uh, I went, "Whoa, you know, this is a big deal." And he tried to he tried to have them change some of their practices. He says, "Well, and this is the sheep ranchers that he was dealing with that the eagles are depredating on the sheep, and um, they they harangue the sheep until they just die of exhaustion in the winter time. They do the same thing with pronghorn antelope, but in the summer or the spring when they have lambing season." The sheep are all bred at the same time, so they all drop their lambs at the same time so the rancher can manage them. The eagles know this, and they chase the ewes away from the newborn lambs. They aren't even out of the embryonic sacs. And if they don't do that scent bond, immediately the sheep cleaning her lamb, that lamb's an orphan lamb. It's done. It's yeah. done. So he saw 15 lambs killed in one incident because the sheep were separated from their lambs right after they were born. Because you can't mix them back, you can't graft them back to their mothers, because they will—they're—they're they're rejected. You—you you have that bond. That was right. interesting. You get that limited time window. That that tiny time window for that—that that sheep, that oxytocin in that sheep, when she's cleaning that lamb, that oxytocin comes through and it bonds her to that lamb. And that's what ranchers do when they're grafting calves. They'll give that cow some oxytocin. You know what oxytocin is? It's the cuddle hormone. Yep. And um, that's what they do when they're grafting a calf to a cow. They'll give that cow oxytocin um, when they're grafting an orphan calf. But you can't do that with 150 sheep. No, not really. <laughs> no. Not all at the same time. And they're skittish as heck anyhow. They're very skittish. Cattle are used to humans. These sheep are wild. They're semi-wild. They're yeah. very skittish. I don't know. You ought to come see some of these cows we have down in Arizona. They get... There, there's some of these. I swear they're feral. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. I love going out, especially you get up like Sedona and you get into those uh, the guys like running the Brahmas up there. Oh, we have Brahmas here in Florida too, because the only things that can survive the heat. Yeah, and yeah. they're mean. They're nasty. Oh, they're fun. They're fun to be around. Oh. Yeah. No, my husband told me that fence is only a courtesy. If he wants to get you, it'll just go through that fence after him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We see a lot of a uh, lot of Brahma, a lot of pretty much Brahma, Angus, and and Whiteface. You know the Herefords. Um, yeah. You know, in the mixes, we see a lot of. Uh, man, I saw. A, I I can tell I've been in cattle country too long because I'm starting to really like the way some of them look. But uh, I saw a big, uh, big brindle the other day, a big brindle bull, 
Man, he was one of the coolest looking cows I've seen in a long time. But, yeah, I don't know. This, my husband knows all the breeds. His father raised cattle, so I don't know all the breeds. But he just warned me about those Brahmas. He said they just they have a high pain threshold, and and um, they, the fence doesn't deter them. It's just a it's just a courtesy. So. Yep. And uh, especially those bulls, they're very territorial. <laughs> oh, they're fun to be around. Yeah, yeah. That's the one nice thing about like the you see the big angi, the big anguses, and. Uh, you know, you'll have one of these 1500 pounders hanging, hanging out a tank and some of them, you swear you can run up and pet them. I wouldn't recommend it, but they, no, they like, don't like care. Like he says, you let them approach you. Don't approach them. Let them approach you. Yeah. So they don't, but they don't really care. And the, the uh, Herefords ain't too bad, but yeah, them, them Brahmas can get to. Yeah. There's Brahmas crosses. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I stay away from them. He, after having one. I'm, I'm retrieving my hawk, and that bull is walking along the fence, thinking about walking through the fence to get me. Yeah. And um, I, what he had warned me about, I, I heed. <laughs> <laughs> I heed. I, I watch that. So um, I but hope you got some good, solid information on abatement itself. But that's basically how it started. But Helen McDonald's book has a lot of good information there. I'm just finishing up. I'm, I'm on the last three chapters right now on it so one more time can you what was the title of that again falcon by just, helen mcdonald just falcon by helen mcdonald okay yep. so yeah if you're interested yeah, so she um, wrote h's for she wrote h's for hawk okay i'm familiar with that book yeah yeah and, but uh, uh she wrote a book called falcon and i went oh what a great book <laughs> well um with that bit uh i think we're gonna wrap it up here well, Miss Kitty, thank you for for coming on and sharing all the information today. All right, and if you have, if you want to do something else, it's just if you have a list of questions like how much, how valuable is a bird, what should you charge? Well, I did already charge. I I equate it with a skilled auto mechanic. You know, a full ASE certified auto mechanic is the what you pay your staff and what you should get. And um, with that, but I hope you've learned a little bit about it. Yes, and ma'am. I enjoy doing the abatement work. You have to be physically fit to do this work. You know, you can't be, you can't not be a very, a rather physically fit person. Not a world class athlete, but you definitely have to have good win and good stamina. Yeah. Not buying me, and not buying mind being alone. The falconers say, "Oh, I get to go fly hawks all day." Oh, I have to fly hawks all day. <laughs> yes, you do. Yeah, it's no get to it. You got it. It's, it's got it to get done. It's your job. Yeah, it's your job. So. <laughs> all right well thank you again and uh i think we're gonna jump off now but uh yeah again if if anybody needs to um wants to get a hold of miss kitty um birds of net and then uh bird strike force correct yeah bird strike force.com yeah. com. okay very cool well uh yeah i think with that i will say goodbye and uh have a good rest of your day you too thank you so much yes ma'am but Have a good one. Bye. Have a good New Year, too. Oh, yeah. Happy New Year. Yes.